Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome on the SASPOD, Paris Aurora, PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at Stanford. Paris, it's so good to talk to you today. Why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, likewise, Lalita. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Paris. Uh, I'm currently a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at Stanford University. Um, I am a medical slash psychological anthropologist, according to my research interests. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be able to talk to you. We um, we know at Stanford that you're working on um, kind of a slightly different topic than other anthropologists in that you have this medical slash psychological uh, angle. Tell us about your research project. Yeah, so uh, I say that I'm broadly interested in care, kinship, and cognitive disability. I think it just sounds very alliteration-y. That's, that's, that, that's really how my interest <laughs> We are. welcome a good alliteration on the SAS part. <laughs> that could be the title of perhaps the podcast then. I love uh, it. But uh, yeah, those are actually my three key interests. So um, the research question that really guides me and motivates me is... You know, how is the aging of uh, autistic individuals in India um, rearranging and reorganizing imaginaries of kinship and practices of care? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why this question is particularly pertinent, um, you know, to be explored currently in the current moment is because over the last one decade, there has been, I would say, a generational shift in understanding of autism, disability in general, cognitive disability in general, uh, whereby disabilities that became uh, named singular disorders in the 1980s and 90s have now reached 2010s onwards, uh, a a space where these are no longer being diagnosed in children. And those who were diagnosed when they were children are now adults. Uh, So in many ways, those who were considered to be autistic were always in certain ways imagined to be infants or children who will never grow up. Mm. Um, My initial work was even titled Caring for a Child Who Never Grows Up. Uh, And that is not to say that they don't grow, but the weight of this uh, disorder, as it were, uh, which is also acknowledged as a unique neurological condition and not just a disorder now, um, makes its subject um, almost infantile in their uh, lifelong dependency on a network of relations for care. And uh, 
recently what's happening uh, is not only that people on the autism spectrum are aging, but their families, their relationships are aging and transforming with time. And as a result of that, there has been an increase in uh, the setting up of privately run assisted living homes uh, that will provide care to autistic adults for the rest of their lives uh, away from their familial homes because they are so fragile. Parents are, you know, aging and dying. Siblings who are non-autistic are mobile and setting up their own families, often, you know, without uh, their autistic siblings. Um, so it's, it's a very, uh, you know... Um, compelling and a very, very mobile place uh, to understand kinship, care, uh, and how these two things are transforming in face of an aging uh, cognitively disabled population or an aging autistic population. I have so many questions already. Um, let's see, where shall I start? Um, when you say um, cognitive disability and, and people with autism. I want to ask you about people first language. Is autistic used as an adjective? And is that quote unquote acceptable? And is that different in India than it might be in the United States in terms of awareness around people first language? And for audience members who don't know this, people first language is a way of saying, saying people with uh, autism or people with um, Down syndrome or people with, so the, the person is not defined by the disability, uh, but they just have that as well as lots of other. Is that a fair way of explaining people first language, Paris? Um, most certainly, yes. Okay, great. Thank you. So I want to ask you about that. But I also want to ask you about, I mean, people are on the spectrum, right? We hear that all the time now. People are on the spectrum. You seem to be talking about people that are far on the spectrum who really can't take care of themselves. So can you address those two things first? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I would say that India is such a diverse landscape when it comes to not only um, languages themselves, but also, you know, this the social movement uh, uh, of and uh, around disabilities. Um, and I would say that really... Uh, a lot of uh, dis uh, activism around um, disabilities and especially cognitive disabilities in particular have been parent-led. Um, so often languages have been in certain ways, my child with autism or my autistic child. Um, and it's only recently that neurodiversity is also becoming a very, very prominent framework for parents themselves, but also young adults who are becoming self-advocates and who are even expected to become a self-advocate, right? Um, so I would say that the dust is not really, or the jury is not really settled on what is the perfect way to address uh, people with autism or autistic people. Um, I end up kind of taking the anthropologist Emily Martin route, where she says that I study people living under the label of something. Oh, so. So I would say that I live, I work with people uh, living under the label of autism. So that means that there are, there's an entire population that might be undiagnosed, right? right? Which I might not be able to work with. And there might be another generation of people uh, who are yet to come, who are going to define autism as something completely different from themselves. Yeah. Uh, but you're right to also, uh, you know, point out that I do end up working with people who could be imagined as lower functioning or with high support needs. So that's also language that yeah. do they need, do they have high support needs or are they lower functioning? So I use both of those labels because those are used in my field. And um, 
those needs are often uh, very cognitive in, in, in their nature. They require uh, an active decision-making caregiver around them who assists them with uh, dealing with, you know, basic chores in everyday life, you know, what to eat, when to eat, how to go to the washroom. So there are these very basic concerns that, um, uh, some people on the spectrum might have, and they have been grossly underrepresented in studies of autism. And I totally understand where that impulse comes from to mark off autism as an identity with dignity and care and with equality. But my research has always been attuned to this end of the spectrum because I think if the goal is dignity, then these lives also are um, worth talking about. And the relational kind of patterns in which they exist, right? Uh, where autism is no longer about the person living under the label, but uh, where the spectrum is shared with another person who might be your accompaniment. It doesn't have to be your mother. It could be a professional caretaker who lives with you. Um, and my interest really is when autism becomes a shared condition. Uh, and, and that's what, you know, really uh, moves me to think of autism in this end of the spectrum across a network of relations. Thank you. Um, I really love listening to you talk about this. And I realize as you're speaking, and we've been speaking for what, five minutes, how much I don't know, uh, which is what I love about the podcast. I love that there's going to be an audience, but really, I learned so much having these conversations. So, so thank you. Um, let me ask you about kinship and care as two separate categories. And you already said it, you know, maybe the mom, it may be a, a private caretaker. Um, and earlier you said um, there may be siblings who have their own homes who move away and do not take necessarily their uh, sibling with um, autism with them. That sounds, oh God, I don't know how to phrase it. Okay, I'm just gonna say, uh, this is just a, 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 a quick term while I think it through, un-Indian. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> Not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but um, I mean, I feel that uh, South Asian culture prides itself on the on the the power of the family, the caretaking, elder, you know, the the the, the respect for elders, grandparents living in the joint family, but not necessarily even the joint family, even within the nuclear family, that there'll be a grandparent living within the house. So, how is this different? Why is this different? And is it different? I, I guess are my three questions. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And I have been really grappling with it. Uh, because, I'm sure. Yeah, because, you know, so when I started my project, so one of the reasons why I started is actually because my sibling is also on the spectrum. And, um, you know, it was always a familial concern, but it was always also a concern which, concern, which, 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 you know, transformed our relationship with the world. Mm -hmm. So it was not just, okay, this is, uh, you know, as they say, ghar ki baat. so we're going to, you know, completely put it aside and the world is where we can be free. Um, that was never the case. So it wasn't as if that it was only a familial concerns because we would, you know, we would go out together and people would still gawk at us. And in certain ways, it, it felt like the stigma of of, of, of uh, being differently oriented to the world, you know, by, you know, uh, stimming or by, you know, biting your hand or by banging your head on the wall. These are some of the behaviors that my, or obsessive behaviors, some of the behaviors that my brother engages in. It it did not only mark him, but mark me as, as somebody who could have that kind of tendencies. Um, 
so it was interesting that simultaneously it was familial, but it had kind of a world as an audience, it felt like. Um, so all is to say that even initially as a young child, I knew that this is something that a family is facing right now, but it implicates the world in interesting ways. And that's why my project is really focused on prioritizing familial relations without letting them over-determine my project, mm -hmm. which is a very tricky balance to have. Um, but precisely, I think uh, it is crucial to maintain that balance because um, in my in initial work with mothers of adults on the spectrum, uh, which was my master's project, um, I realized that I was missing the story of aging on the spectrum by virtue of according a prime voice to the mothers only, um, because the adults themselves had other forms of relations which were not entirely social. So they had a relationship with superheroes that they watched on TV. They had relations with objects around them, the, the non-human, the material culture around them. There was also lives of relatives who had abandoned uh, uh, an autism household, as it were, which is a term that is often used in, in, in my field. And those lives are also implicated with them because, you know, there will be questions about after the mother passes away, who is going to get the property. And the so there are these structural entanglements of kinship. Mm -hmm. And there is also an uh, an escape from it when it, it happens at the level of material culture, at the level of friendships, at the level of, you know, institutional friends that you find in a special school. So I realized that I can never make my project only about family and kinship, um, but they, that needs to be centralized and as a point of entry because that's how social life is organized in India. Uh, but care is that kind of a practice or analytic or affect which makes you move away from kinship uh, right. while acknowledging its, 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 you know, its uh, ubiquity in your context. So it has to be both really, yeah. um, which, which, which is a conversation that many anthropologists are having to deal with as well, because the studies of care in anthropology started, I would say, in the 1990s with, you know, LGBTQ activism on the rise, uh, the post-structural turn in feminist philosophy and the rise of biotechnologies, whereby all these shifts were making people acknowledge that kinship as we knew it, as a blood-based or as an alliance-based structure imposed on us is no longer the logic of families, right? Families we choose came up. Um, People could adopt transnationally, so families were beyond blood-based ties, and uh, families were performed through acts, uh, through, you know, a la Judith Butler, so not only gender, but families also performed. And then, you know, care became the core analytic amongst anthropologists. But it's only, I think, recently when people are acknowledging that we cannot completely forget kinship because life in different parts of the world continue to be structured by kinship as this invisible structure around you, right? Even in schools that you work, you're like a family. You're like a brother. You're like a sister to each other. So family remains a kind of label then that you're performing even in spaces that are anti-family like an institution. Right. Um, so I'm having to kind of balance care mm. uh, and kinship as these two things that I have to study in relationship to, you know, this, 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 this volatile thing called disability. Who are the people who are able to access the, the private care? I'm, I'm wondering if we think about um, kind of um, socioeconomic structures in India, um, who are the people that you're working with? What languages do you work in? And, and, 
um, is there a kind of a government sponsored health system, care system, or is it all private? And private, um, to clarify, in India does not necessarily mean crazy expensive like it would here in the United States. Um, so I feel there's private can mean affordable, which is to American ears like what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I guess affordable, quote unquote. But yeah, can you yeah. speak to that a little? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a very important question to kind of completely like acknowledge even at the very beginning because private sounds like a completely different thing in India. A private private care actually ends up being a lot more accessible than state based care, yeah. which is. Uh, which comes with its own kind of baggage, uh, obviously, uh, you know, with its own caste coded and gendered limitations. But um, I work at a very diverse range of assisted living homes. Even a lot of them do not refer to themselves as assisted living homes. They would call themselves hostels, uh, special schools. Uh, they, they sometimes call themselves ashrams, uh, you know. So it's it's interesting how uh, a home is imagined or, uh, or, or, or mm. care is imagined by... Uh, these kinds of, I would say, um, caring communities to have a very broad term. Um, yeah, so uh, I mostly work in and around Delhi uh, because of, you know, practical concerns. And yeah. Delhi really has a majority of these inst uh, institutions. Um, and uh, these are often started by families themselves. Uh, so it's started mm -hmm. by a group of parents. So one can even think of them as self-help groups, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, so a lot of parents started, occupational therapists, special educators started, they raise funds, uh, they go out, reach out to philanthropists who might have disabled family members of their own. So there's a lot of kind of, I would say, labor that goes into making an institution a possibility. Um, and uh, they are, they could, they could, you know, cost anywhere around between 10,000 rupees a month to a lakh a month. So there's a very wide range of institutions out there. There are also some which charge as less as 4,000 rupees a month because they have tie-ups with local NGOs that, you know, subsidize um, care. Um, so, so I work at a wide range, um, at least I'm planning on, I've been visiting them and as, as I do my long-term field work, I'll try to divide my time across different neighborhoods as well. Um, but it's also interesting to see how the class and slash caste background of these locales, uh, of these institutions and locales impacts the kind of therapeutic expertise that they claim to provide. Mm -hmm. So in middle class neighborhoods, you will see that some of these homes are also vocational training centers mm -hmm. because the future that they want for their residents is one where money is going to be an issue. So they want the residents to not only have a home to live in, but also a place where they can be skilled workforce, um, which often means, you know, crafts and other forms of, you know, uh, there's a whole model economy around crafts made by disabled folks sure. in India. So they kind of kind of induct uh, these residents into that economy. Uh, but then there are, you know, relatively more afford uh, less affordable places that provide emotional regulation, emotional management training, mm -hmm. or, 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 or independent living training, where money is not necessarily going to be a concern for these residents, what might be a concern is independent daily living. Tell me about your methodology. Um, do you, I mean, presumably you talk to people, but um, what is your point of entry and what kinds of conversations do you have and what do you do beyond? Like, what does your ethnography look like? Yeah, yeah, that is a can of worms. <laughs> we love worms. <laughs> Bring them on. Uh, yeah, so I would like broadly say that 
to begin with, like I think my ethnographic ethos and practice um, really, you know, differs from one can say traditional, but there really is not, I would say, a tradition in anthropology. It, it seems to be this norm floating around of this lone archetypal field worker who goes, you know, in a so-called exotic location, air quotes, yeah. um, and, you know, is away from home, you know, does field work amongst uh, non uh, self folks so others yeah. um, and goes back to the academic milieu and produces a written account of that place um, yes. and that is not what fieldwork looks like for me at all yeah. um, uh, so you know one of the ways in which my ethnography is different is that my family has been uh, a core component and a core accompaniment in this fieldwork and I, I've been developing uh, this 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 work and uh, this paper and this concept called familial ethnography whereby your family is something that an ethnographer cannot renounce back at home or simply acknowledge in the acknowledgement section of their monograph but they have to engage with their family before throughout and alongside and after one's field work mm-hmm. um so that's one big thing that i have to consider like Delhi just happened to be, first of all, a place where these institutions were coming up, but it's also a place where my sibling and my family lives, and I have caring obligations that I have to take into account. Um, So my ethnography will be interrupted by familial demands and familial obligations, Um, and I have to take that into account by planning my research, for example. So that's one way in which I think my ethnography looks different. Um, The second is that I end up working with uh, many autistic interlocutors who are nonverbal, um, and with them, this face-to-face uh, verbal encounter is something that is not always possible. A lot of my interlocutors do not like making eye contact. They do not like listening to these affirmative tones that we make. <laughs> yeah, so they, they feel interrupted by this. So often conventions of good interviews are not entirely applicable in my work. Um, so I have to be extremely tuned to what how ethnography might look different in an encounter with uh, neurodiversity and for uh, that necessarily looks more multimodal for me so I often draw with my interlocutors again a lesson that I learned by my with my own sibling because we have always drawn together so I've taken that lesson with me to the field and it has worked pretty well so far so we often draw together we make timetables and calendars together because those are things that institutions often use as these kinds of tools to make living more regimental and and livable uh, for interlocutors because um, a lot of autistic residents prefer that kind of routine um so i've used those kinds of entry points you know which are provided by institutions or mandated by institutions as spaces for a certain kind of creative envisioning um so we we often talk about future beyond the institution and we have to kind of take many pages and pages okay what is life going to look like in 2060 and but 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 because my interlocutors want to go month by month so we spend uh, hours and <laughs> is making <laughs> calendars up till 2060 sometimes i just take my phone out and i'm like okay just let's let's scroll to 2060 and think about your future <laughs> so i have to become you know you have to does the phone it. go that far i've never everybody's now picking up their phone and scrolling it I Google, I Google. <laughs> so that's one thing, you know, art uh, and 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 uh, these kinds of, I would say, um, 
non like non human slash object affordances that are used to communicate with my interlocutors have has made a huge kind of impact in centering the voices of my autistic interlocutors which is again a very big issue in research on disability where disabled perspectives are not taken into account so when i say autism is a shared condition i'm not saying that necessarily to avoid engaging with autistic folks themselves, I want to. And I, I'm really trying to make ethnography more um, less ableist and more uh, neuro-cosmopolitan, uh, uh, you know. Um, and the third way is to really think of ethnography as something beyond a written end product, which is often a question that is asked, you know, what is the kind of book that you want to write? And I love that question because it actually makes you think of uh, something else as well. So my book, for example, is going to look different in the sense that it will have these drawings and these sketches that I make with my interlocutors. Um, so that is one way, but it also makes you think of what else is going to come out of your ethnography. And I've been really thinking about, you know, you know, maybe curating exhibitions that focus on the art of a lot of uh, my interlocutors. And one of the things that I necessarily want to do is, 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 is undo this division between craft makers and neurodiverse artists. So there are these invisible, uh, disabled um, residents who are involved in making craft products, which are later on sold during, you know, Diwali and other festivals. And then there are these very visible um, uh, neuro neurodiverse artists who have been able to enter these regimes of value where their art is being their work is being acknowledged as art and I'm really trying to undo that uh, and I'm hoping to do an exhibition at the end of my ethnographic uh, research which looks at uh, autistic futures uh, and the medium is not only going to be traditional neurotypical art which is acceptable as per you know this invisible art community but uh, but but also includes and 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 centers on the experience of craft makers uh, or or the so-called special interests of autistic um uh, residents and interlocutors who engage in practices that are not called art, but in necessarily communicate with the world around them. Um, so yeah, that is another way in which my ethnography um, is, I would say, um, designed and, and, and done differently uh, from, let's say, institutional mandated genres of doing ethnographic work. And it's quite weird, really, now that I'm listening to you. I, I mean, I know that, that there are more multimodal outputs but it's still very much focused on the book. And then you might get, I mean, we used to, because I, my work was, was uh, considered ethno um, musicological. So there'd be the CD, you know, at the end of the book. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and we thought that was quite advanced. <laughs> and now there might be a link to a website, but it's, it's always an add on, right? That's never the substance of your work. And it, it really, I mean, I'm thinking as as you're speaking, like it's really time to overhaul that. Like it's and there's nothing wrong with books. I mean, let's just be clear. We support books. <laughs> we support we do. We but, accept free copies. <laughs> but it's one of many ways that things can be put out there. And it's um yeah, fascinating questions come out of that. So I uh, I hope you will have that exhibition and I hope that will be um you know, that can also be online. And, and I know that when you're producing a book in terms of just the, the logistics of publishing, putting in pictures is difficult, but putting in a link to a website is not actually that difficult. And I know people freak out if it's not clickable, but you can do a tiny URL, can be manageable, right? You can type it in. 
Yeah, absolutely. Or a QR code. Uh, QR code, there it is. That's the thing we need. Exactly. Perfect. Um, you are going into your third year at Stanford, is that right? Uh, I am, and then I'll move into my fourth year now, yes. Okay, so so you're kind of halfway through-ish, but you're not, you know, you're nowhere near the end. I don't mean to depress you. Uh, this is a, a run-up to saying it's really quite um, admirable that you were able to um, be awarded a fairly major research grant from the Arts and Justice group uh, mm -hmm. at Stanford. Um, and I would like to end by you telling us a little bit about that project and uh, and the grant that you got. And so many congratulations to you. It's really, it's an amazing achievement. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lalita. Um, yeah, so it's, um, you know, uh, uh, it's called the Arts Plus Justice Grant. It's offered by the Stanford Arts Institute and the Institute for Diversity in the Arts. Um, and it really focuses, uh, I, I put in an, uh, an application uh, where I did try to think like an artist, uh, which was, you know, something that I, I feel like I had, um, you know, sidelined over the last few years because it's it's perhaps that baggage that I have borrowed, like in 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 grade two. I was just presenting my research the other day to, um, you know, folks in Pakistan, and I asked them like, is this the case here as well that in grade ten, uh, students are divided in humanities, non medical, and medical fields, and medical folks do medical stuff, serious stuff, and humanities folks do not so serious stuff. Which is <laughs> And uh, now, as I come to the US, there is medical humanities, right, which is what I have been associated with at also Stanford, uh, running the medical humanities workshop as a graduate co-chair over the last few last year. Um, and I, I focus, I've seen my impulse, an impulse in me to really, you know, advocate for medical anthropology as, as crucial in the scientific community to, for to get attention for it but i've often seen kind of resistance to to uh, in myself even to, to acknowledge the the necessity of humanities and humanistic work in uh, that, that that deals with the medical or health or care um, and, and that's the kind of baggage that I worked with. So I applied for this grant, thinking like an artist, claiming the label artist, which was very, very difficult for me, but mm -hmm. I did and it went through. Um, and it really focuses on the experiences of, um, you know, uh, distance uh, and, and and longing uh, in amongst international students back far away from South Asia and home um, and, and the objects that they use to, um, to bridge that distance for me in first year that was family photographs that was having chai with you uh, which you really love you know lovingly took me out for and I really still thank you for that um and and uh, yeah the kind of uh you know affordances and again a word that I keep using but affordances that you rely on to to to, to make family in an unfamiliar space so I'm going to be focusing on that in the uh, in that project um and uh yeah, I'm quite excited to also work as an artist simultaneously uh, as a medical anthropologist who has serious concerns, uh, but equally serious practices and concerns as an artist. Yeah. Why was it so hard for you to claim the artist label? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because I remember when I was in school, I used to, and when my English wasn't as good, I used to send out these emails um, with the subject title and young artists from India to international art competitions with my artworks because I felt that there was very little 
um, space for the kind of art that I did, which really focused on the day-to-day, -day, the mundane. It really was a lot about autism as well. And there wasn't as many things around me that wanted us to draw on autism. They wanted us to draw about saving Mother Earth and save, <laughs> preserving heritage. And I'm like, well, how do we, why do we not draw the family? So I used to send out these pieces and that, that, phase really helped me blossom into somebody who was more communicative. Mm -hmm. I was very inward looking, very concerned about getting back home on time. Um, I remember that phase, I was really lauded as an artist, but something changed around the time I, you know, went to college where it, it was a very clear division, not only between uh, the hum uh, between the humanities and arts on one hand and sciences on the other, but the social sciences and the humanities, that we do not engage with art uh, as a practice. It's a research object for us at, at most. And um, it's only now that I'm returning to art seriously. And um, I would say that my fieldwork has forced me to engage with it, but it's something that I've always done. I've always scribbled around my notes. I've always made notes both visually and verbally. Um, I've always, you know, uh, been more concerned about the aesthetic of a room than the books on the table. Um, so yeah, I I think that it was, again, this, 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 this division of labor and div scientific division um, between the arts and 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 the, the social sciences and the, any scientific on the other hand um, and it's only recently and I think conversations at Stanford that have given me the confidence to claim art and anthropology together um, and I'm really I'm happy to have a community which um, acknowledges you know the labor of doing these two things simultaneously and the rewards as well yeah I'm so glad you were able to do that and I'm, I'm glad that you were kind of recognized by this prestigious grant so that's that's a lovely a kind of a confirmation of uh, of your value, I guess, and not that grants give us our value, but these external things help, right? When you're insecure about something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to just um, mention to our audience, if you're interested in this topic that Paris speaks about, home as field, your field worker, but you're at home, but you're also kind of not at home because you're coming from a foreign institution as an ethnographer, um, a podcast that came out, um, middle of December with Chubangmi Gupta uh, is actually called Home as Field and speaks to this very topic. Uh, so you can find out more about that in case you missed that uh, episode. Um, Paris, thank you so much for making time for me today. And I've truly loved our conversation and I've learned so much. Thank you so much, Lalita. It's always a delight to be in conversation with you. But yeah, this was really special. Thank you so much. Uh, as always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for the intro and outro to the podcast and Manar Flayful Kenyar for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.
Oh,